not live, but from Berlin. This is the Virtually Possible Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the third episode of the Virtually Possible Podcast. I'm joined today by Artyom Chalbaev, who is the co-founder of Alice, the investment app for women, helping them identify and work towards fulfilling their financial goals. Bringing more awareness to the uniqueness of female life journeys, Alice's team focuses on coaching women about managing their finances to help them build savings and investment plans. Artyom is also a keen athlete. He's a rare creature that successfully stand-up paddleboarded across Lake Tahoe, cross-country skied 97 kilometers in 13 hours, 49 minutes in Lapland, and biked 640 kilometers in four days around Berlin, and completed a few other crazy endurance challenges. Today, we're meeting to talk about yet another one, founding and growing a company with an ambitious goal of bringing more financial equality to the only gender that can make humans. And all that during our COVID-19 pandemic. Welcome, Artem, to the podcast. What an intro. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to start off with you giving us a little bit of a background on, on Alice, on the idea, on where the company is right now. Sure. The idea is something that kind of naturally grew out of my own curiosity and actually desire to start a company. I spent quite a few months trying to work on different ideas and for a variety of reasons, none of them kind of landed until I read something in a magazine of an ex-girlfriend of mine about the wealth distribution, uh, global wealth distribution between men and women. And there was a statistic that really piqued my curiosity, I think, uh, because of course I knew about the wage gap, uh, I knew about the challenges that women were facing in the workplace and at home as well. But the statistic really encapsulated all of that in, in, in one number. And it was that women around the world, despite being 50% of the population, own 40% of the wealth while men own the other 60. And I remember reading this and thinking, wait a minute, this somehow doesn't really make sense. Let me, let me look into this. And so I started reading more, uh, just first Googling, then reading research papers, then doing interviews and books. And it basically grew into what is now Alice, which is a small team where three people, myself, another co-founder and an intern, because all startups are built on the backs of high potential interns. I'm glad uh, these folks have, have joined me on this journey so far. And the stage is that we are still trying to identify exactly how to tackle this and how to take this big opportunity and break it down into small pieces that we can actually execute on. And that's what we do. So are you guys still at the stage of building an MVP? I would say? say we're before the stage of building an MVP. So it has become very apparent to me and my co-founder who is actually someone with over 20 years of Wall Street experience and financial products and financial technology companies. And the great thing about her is that on the side for the last couple of years, she has been coaching women on this topic as a, a side project of hers. So she's very, very uh, passionate and knowledgeable about the topic. And because of the research that I have done first uh, before we met and her own experience, we know that the problem is there. So we've sort of qualified the problem and the opportunity space. We have come up with some hypotheses around what would need to be done to, uh, to solve that problem. 
But right now it's about bridging the gap between understanding the problem space and actually executing on the product, which is really kind of pre-MVP, I would say. I think if you ask any woman about their finances, which you've done through, um, through the initial research, you will see that the problem definitely exists, right? right? That there's a lot of insecurity coming from women about managing their finances. There's a lack of understanding of how to even start building your own portfolio in, in whatever sense, whether this is through um, investment or savings or, or even just the basic management of monthly budget. Um, and, and there's always this issue that we, that all humans have, which is having enough foresight about the long-term future that you're set out to have and, and how to budget for that. And people generally are okay planning for the next two, three years. But if you ask anyone, if you ask anyone about how they're planning for their retirement, they either are inclined to put out, put away some money or they're usually saying, well, I don't worry about this right now. I think money is a fascinating topic because it's all of those things that you just mentioned, including the kind of, we obviously live in a short term world that requires us to do long-term planning for our own financial success. And this is something that when I did interviews with uh, a variety of women in di from different backgrounds, ages, stages of life, I heard it time and time again that, you know, why would I plan for the future if I want to enjoy my life now? And I think that's a challenge that all of us face. I don't think, and by the way, I don't think that money or sort of some of these challenges are unique to women. They're actually applicable to both men and women and other genders as well. It's just women, in addition to the challenges that you mentioned about sort of the fears and the knowledge and the sh gap between the short-term life and the long-term thinking, also have a lot of social conditioning around how we raise girls and women to, to think about money. And actually, before we even talk about making any financial plans, thinking about retirement or how to execute on those plans, what is most of the time the problem is actually the mindset. And I think that is the biggest opportunity that we as, as a company, Alice, have is to try and start the conversation and bring to the foreground that as with many other things in life, right, dieting, exercise, you name it, there's always that gap between realizing where your own blocks are and it's just with money i think they're exacerbated because there's also kind of a financial reward at the end of it and that i think is the biggest opportunity and the biggest challenge that we we will face is the mindset and the psychology of money kind of aspect of it when we spoke about this before we very early on realized that the problem really is rooted in upbringing and in the way your own psychology works with how boys are raised to always be the winner and are always patted on the back for everything that they've done not to say that girls are never like that but i think we as women have different roles in society and being the, the breadwinner by definition is not something that we have 
engraved in our brains. We think we're the caretaker. And then whenever a woman is ambitious and whenever a woman wants to achieve a lot in the business world, it's, it's a bigger challenge for them. There's a fantastic book on this. It's called Prince Charming Isn't Coming. And I hate the name of it, but it's kind of the go-to book on financial psychology for, for women. And it's written by a person, a woman who um, had inherited a lot of money from her father who uh, started H&R Block, which is one of the biggest software uh, companies for tax preparation in the US. So she inherited a lot of money, which then was squandered by her husband to the point where she never cared about it because her father had always said, you know, you will be provided for. And then when her husband got access to this money through marriage, she sort of never bothered to, to look after it until she went to the ATM and the ATM couldn't give her any money because there was no money in the bank account. And so she faced this um, kind of huge eye-opening experience of what is it like to always expect that you're going to be taken care of and coming to the realization that you're not. So that's kind of the background of the book. And pretty much the core theme of, of the book is how we raise girls to think about money. And if we look at traditional fairy tales, right, this role of a princess sitting in the tower while the knight, which obviously amplifies the, the male figure, is out hustling and killing dragons and going on adventures and stuff and ultimately being in control of their own destiny, while the framework that we provide to girls who read those fairy tales is that the expectation of them is to sit in the tower, be kind of passive about what's happening, right? You're probably expected to look pretty and, and be nice and kind and caring. But then when it comes to actually being in control of your own life and the circumstances around you, that's not the message that girls get. And obviously there's a big conversation about to have about how that is also changing in our generation, in the generation after us, and the future generations. But I think the core theme of it seems to hold true, which is that for women, maybe it's even harder now, because when that framework is provided by the fairy tale, but then you come into the real world and you start working and you know maybe you have a kid, but your partner leaves or you decide to leave the partner, and you actually end up being in a situation where you need to be control of, in control of your own life, there's a huge gap between what you've been raised with and how your expectations of the world have been set and what the world is actually like. And I think there's just so much change and so much education and so many conversations to be had about this to create a future in which hopefully women own 50% of the wealth rather than 40. I think bearing in mind how the society is changing right now and how the gender roles are it's not even that they're reversed or not it's just they, they're, they're changing and adapting to the circumstances we have obviously a lot of women first of all they have ambition to achieve something more in life than just fulfilling their roles as mothers and then totally different um, approach to even relationships these days where people don't get married and people don't follow that old idea of building a one type of a family 
and then having you know the man making all the money and the woman staying at home so that also just on one hand opens up a lot of opportunities for women to so that they can do whatever they want to do in life but at the same time it creates that challenge that they should be able to be financially independent should anything happen and that is not something that women or girls as as when they're younger are being told to kind of keep at the back of their head that they will have to yeah, definitely. Uh, be be some uh, in some way responsible also, for their own finances. If you think about there are different ways to talk about what money is and it's highly dependent on your background and, and, and your set of beliefs and values. But mm-hmm. you could make a point that money in a way and, and financial well-being is an expression of power, right? And coming back to that example of the fairy tale, who has the power between the princess in the tower and the knight slaying dragons, it's quite obvious that the boys have access to power. And so we condition and we raise boys to be okay with being in control of the circumstances of their own lives. Whereas when women face those com- uh, for those circumstances later in life, whether that's because you're a single mom or even if you know you have a great partner but maybe there are challenges at work and you need to negotiate a salary right or jump into that position of being in control and being in power if through your entire childhood you've been told explicitly hopefully not but at least implicitly that's not your position i think that's a really really difficult place to reconcile those two sets of of beliefs and Especially nowadays, as, as you've mentioned, with so many things changing, of course, Corona, and I'm sure we'll get to that later on as well. All of these factors coming in together, I think it's both a very exciting, but also a very challenging time to be alive. Because in a way, we're kind of losing these anchors and together we're trying to figure out, okay, where is this going to go? Let's actually talk about coronavirus because a few months ago, McKinsey um, released this report about women in the workplace in 2020 and the impact of COVID. And some people claimed in another article that nothing has really changed for women because of the pandemic. And we know talking to our female friends or family members that anyone who is already working has a family COVID has definitely amplified the stress because not only did you have to make sure that you take care of your loved ones and then perform at the job, but then also try to carve out a few minutes to yourself. But with everyone being around the house, there's almost never any free time that you can find. So the stress levels have definitely been higher. And let's talk about how important it is right now for women to realize that they have to take back that agency over their own financial security because in times of any unexpected events having some kind of financial security helps to alleviate the stress because it gives you some comfort in the fact that you'll be able to manage your future better you have that safety net Mm. if if things go south you at least have some kind of buffer to fall back on for a few months before you try to find another another gig or another job so what do you think 
is key right now in times of COVID for women to realize with regards to their finances? I think, in fact, it doesn't really have much to do with Corona as a general state of mind that we as humans, again, actually a lot of these things that we're talking about around money are not unique to women. Financial education is lacking as much for women as it is for men really at the point of middle school and and high school. Uh, It's just the challenges for women are even greater. I think my point there would be to come to a place where we realize that finances are actually way less complicated and being in control of your own finances and building that financial confidence is way less complicated than we believe it is. And there's tons of reasons, uh, I'm sure most of which I don't even know why we've been socialized and kind of raised to believe that it's super complex and you need to be a math wizard and you know you need to understand all of this jargon. The reality is that you can read one book and I can rec- recommend some if, uh, if people are interested and you're, be, you're going to be on a, on a good path, to be honest with you, towards being that financial confidence. And I think as I think about our mission for Alice, it's giving women the confidence and taking away that complexity and taking steps almost for them to make finances not be top of mind. Because as you were mentioning just now with Corona and the the various aspects of, of life that are happening, what is really tricky is that I think for most people, there are these fears around what is my financial situation going to look like, but they're not clear fears because you don't really know, right? It's just a feeling and it's in your mental space of, I should do something about my finances, but I'm afraid because it's hard or I'm not a math person. So you just kind of push it off, but it's always there. And our hope is that by building this company and building this product, we can create a place where we take finances out of your mental space so that you can focus on other parts of your life, such as your relationships or progressing in your career and and things of that nature. And there's actually a really fascinating study from BlackRock that came out, I think, last year where they did a survey of people who had started investing for the first time, I think. And what they found is that even taking a step towards investing, you know, if you're putting away five euros or 50 euros or however much you can a month, immediately makes you 24% happier and 19% less stressed. And that's kind of the place that we would like to go with Alice is to enable you to take that first step. And from there on, take out money of your mental space as much as possible so that you can focus on other parts of your life. This is very true. I remember when I had months when I would not put away money because let's say I had some ideas to redecorate or go on a trip and I wouldn't be able to um, set away a certain amount of money. And it didn't make me feel great because you know you, you didn't think, oh, I'm, I'm kind of splashing out instead of thinking about what what can happen and to have that emergency fund. So it definitely is very important that you're able to at least set aside a part of your income. And then it's, well, first of all, it's important to have an income and then it's important to set aside a part of your income regularly because there might be a situation in the future where 
uh, that income is not present. But I think we also spoke about this before the the fact that that people don't even have an emergency fund, and that is maybe a first good step to take if you're not even into investing as much, but just being able to create that kind of um, if it's a separate account or or um, some kind of a mental amount that you remember not to ever touch. Uh, but I think a separate account is probably the easiest way to do it of money that you can keep in case shit hits the fan. Yeah, yeah there's different terms for the emergency fund, including <laughs> the fuck off fund. And uh, you're probably going to bleep me out. Uh, and different... We don't bleep out. But I think the proper term used now is the FU money. FU money, exactly. <laughs> Completely. And I think that's, we think about this a lot because also so far we've talked about women as a very broad category but of course there are however many 3.5 billion women and everybody is as unique as uh, as the other one right so for someone who is maybe a little bit further advanced in life or comes from more privileged circumstances for them starting investing or optimizing their investing strategy is way more important than someone who is from a different background isn't making really a ton of income to even think about these things. So we kind of need to think about how to start people with finances at a level that is comfortable for them. And I think the place where we need to get to is sort of to remove the pressure and the expectations and say, you know what, to be honest with you, if for whatever reason, all you're able to save this month is 15 euros, then save at least 15 euros. Because it's not about having a perfect strategy today, but it's rather, as my co-founder likes to say, doing ordinary things consistently that leads to extraordinary results. I think it's a Tony Robbins quote. That's kind of the approach that we need to get to is you just take steps regularly that get you to a better place. And over the long term, hopefully in 10 years or 20 years, when you look back at the steps that you've taken, you realize that actually, yes, saving those 15 euros 20 years ago put me in a much better place. And one of, one thing I wanted to mention on that, throughout all of this research, I think the one statistic that blew my mind in a very, very negative way is a study from the UK from a couple of years ago that said 16% uh, of people, meaning men and women, um, have stayed in relationships purely out of financial reasons. And yes, it, it was... People, so it didn't split by gender, but my expectation is that most of those people were, were women. And to be honest with you, I don't want to live in the future and in a world where 16% or let's say it's one out of every 10 women stays with a partner purely for financial reasons. That It just doesn't make any sense. And so whatever we can do today to to get ourselves, the people around us, and the wider world, I guess, to a better place so that that doesn't happen, I think we need to do that. So that's what we're planning with Alice. That's I'll get off my soapbox, sorry. <laughs> that's, that's the short version of what the mission and the vision of the company is. Indeed. But I think it's important to talk about this as well because... Well, whether this is people staying in relationships out of fear or out of comfort for tax reliefs, like that should never really be the reason why you're with another person. 
what I think about mostly is it's crazy how deeply rooted this problem is from the very, very um, early age um, to how to people think about money and how to um, and how people think about their roles in society. So it's going to be very interesting to see how you guys tackle this. And a, a, a huge part, I think, of your of your story is going to be the educational part. There, there's so much of that education that has to be put out in the world, whether it's towards women, but also towards men, when speaking to fathers of daughters, that they have to be cognizant of how they prime their own daughters to think about money and how they educate them on importance of financial independence. Completely. It's a, it's a really good point because it also puts me in the spotlight. I get to ask myself myself questions of what is my role in all of this and sort of what have I done in the past and what can I do in the future to not just build products, but in a way also start the larger conversation. And I've seen it also since I've started working on this topic, obviously with myself, sort of how much more aware you become of these things. That makes sense. But also the impact that those conversations can have on others. And in this particular case, I don't mean women, but I actually mean men because through our own research we've seen that when you ask women where would they go for financial advice most of the time you would get some type of a male role model whether that's a father a brother a partner a ex-partner of a good friend there's always some type of a male presence who women think will help them to navigate this topic and i think a lot of the opportunity here including for me, of course, it's very difficult for me to, to speak authentically about these topics to a group of strangers, right? Which is why I'm very, very proud and happy that I actually have a, an incredible female co-founder who, who can do that. But what I can do authentically is speak to men. And I have been doing that since I started working on this topic. And I vividly remember one conversation with a friend of mine who, to his credit, actually has his own company, his entire management team, except for himself, are all women. He's very much on the edge and on the forward-looking side of how to build equal opportunities for women. But I vividly remember sitting with him one Friday having a beer and we talked about the specific challenges that women face around money. And he, he told me that, you know, despite the fact that I've been surrounded by amazing women who keep talking to me about it, until you and I sat down as two dudes having a beer on a Friday afternoon after work and talked about it, it didn't really register. Mm. And so that aspect of education, I think I'm very excited about to talk to the fathers, to the brothers, to partners and enable men to become better advocates for women, not just about money, but also in careers, right? If you are hiring a person, if you're managing a team or you're looking to promote someone, what kind of biases do you have and what can you do to actually enable women to get to a better place as a guy? And I think that's super, super important. Yeah. That doesn't mean that you should not pay for women whenever you go out for dinner. This is just being a gentleman. So that I'll, is... I'll leave that up to the individual circumstance. <laughs> no, I'm just making a joke. Yeah. But let's talk about your journey as a founder 
What are the key challenges that you're seeing today starting a company? Are they different than you thought they would be? Are they different because of the circumstances that we're in? Yeah, I think for context, I've been thinking about actually starting my company or a company since the first couple of months of, of my career. So that's been over 10 years in the making and for a variety of reasons, uh, it only started happening sort of in the last, I guess, year and a half or so. And I think the, the part that I didn't expect at all is how much the founding journey is actually tied to the journey of self discovery, or at least that was how it happened for me. I can't say that it's the same for everybody else, but for me, it was very much a major step of self discovery to start working on this company because you realize that I think for many of us, for the first time that you really truly are in the driver's seat and that there is no framework, there is no, you know, parent teacher boss or somebody else telling you what to do. You really are in the situation where at any given point in time, you kind of have no reference point. You need to figure it out on your own, which oftentimes happens that it both leads you to fantastic peaks and pretty low lows. And in fact, the cadence of those peaks and lows can be the span of hours. And so on the founding journey for me, I think that has been the biggest learning is that it is actually tied to understanding and learning how to manage your own mental space. So I think that's kind of been on the personal side, the biggest learning in terms of Corona or the, the founding aspects of a company. It's my first company, so I don't really have anything else to compare it with. And I think as any good founder, you don't really think about it too much. You just kind of deal with the circumstances the way they are. Um, I think what I have been very, very lucky with and I'm very happy to kind of have built up this resource is because I have been working for over 10 years now and my co-founder over 20, we both have actually very strong existing networks. And so I can't imagine what it must be like for uh, a young student founder, first time founder out of university, for example, to try and get into uh, resources or get advice from people when you don't have an existing network because there's no meetups or there are some meetups, right? But we're also, as we were talking about how things are changing, we're in the place where we're trying to figure out how do social interactions happen nowadays, not in the physical space, but in online space. So how does networking happen? How do online meetups happen? How does that work? And I'm very, very happy to say that for us, that hasn't been a huge blocker because we do have that existing network. And I would say talking about Corona specifically, that's probably the biggest uh, difference I would say compared to starting a company a year ago or so. That's a very valid point. And I think the scary part about founding anything is that like you said, you take the ultimate responsibility uh, for it and you have to motivate yourself to do it day in, day out. And it's very different from being told what to do at work to designing your own work and exploring different ideas uh, related to it. 
and being able to execute on whatever you set to do. And that is very different from what you do when you're when you just have a list of things uh, that your manager gave you and then you just have to do that. I think motivation is key and I'm glad you you touch upon that topic because in a way you have to figure out how to motivate yourself. And what I realized a couple of months ago before I started working with my co-founder, as you get taught through drinking the Kool-Aid of startups, right? You're always looking for external feedback from experts, from users, and it's extremely valuable to do that. However, by definition, getting feedback, especially at this early stage, means you're constantly confronted with the fact that things don't work or people point out to you the things that are not good. So uh, specifically, I'm thinking of a conversation with a friend of mine who's a very talented brand designer and she volunteered a couple of hours of her time to look at sort of the brand and the online presence we had at the time. And basically her critique was crushing, crushing. It really, (laughs) after that conversation, I came out thinking, talking about those values, right? you kind of start questioning whether you're doing the right thing. You're sitting during lockdown on the couch in your apartment by yourself and somebody who actually knows what they're talking about is telling you, hey, this is terrible. You need to do a better job. And in that moment, or let's say after I picked myself up from the floor and put the pieces back together, I think I realized that part of what probably makes founding easier is that you need to actually build momentum for yourself and you need to do things that in a way show to you that momentum is happening in whichever ways you can do that, whether that's a conversation with another founder, whether that's, um, I don't know, looking at your own notes from a month ago and seeing how far you've come along, whether that's something else that shows you the fact that you're moving forward. Those are the moments that we need to get to as founders and we actually kind of need to celebrate that things are moving forward because it's so easy to get crushed by by feedback but yeah let's drill down on those like good ideas of how to pick yourself back up if when we talk about ways of getting back on track what would you say are the steps that you've taken that work for you yeah that's a good question um and i'm actually very in a way happy that the athletic challenges that I've done in the past uh, that you mentioned in the beginning that I have done them because through that process you actually in a way learn a lot a lot of things that help you to overcome any challenges Mm -hmm. and I think the core idea of that is to to realize that any journey however long is actually it consists of tiny steps and that when you are in front of a difficult situation or you've encountered a hurdle that you realize that it's not the end of the world and that there is the next step after that which practically for me means oftentimes when i'm working on something and i feel like i'm not making progress and as oftentimes happens during the founding journey you're probably in the office or at home late at night you know you feel exhausted to step back and to realize that you're going to stop you're going to go to bed, you're going to wake up tomorrow, and it's going to be a completely new and different day. 
And that thought that you kind of break up whatever you're working on into tiny pieces and you realize that tomorrow it's, it might be different, it might also be the same and we need to be okay with that. But that there's this optionality of things being different tomorrow is something that um, has kept me going, not just on the founding journey, but also when I face kind of struggles in other parts of my life or during the endurance challenges as well. I think sports is a great analogy in that way because I a lot of times think about what I do in my uh, professional life. I think if only I could apply what I know from training to work because a lot of times you go out and train and not every run that you go on is great. Not every workout that you do is feels amazing. But then, but you come back, like the next day you do it again. And I think this is kind of the, this is a great mindset to have of that, whether it's a, like an athletic mindset where you just understand that everything you do is, has a compounding effect. And even the, even the, the, the bad days are very helpful because if you don't know what the bad days are like, then you cannot, I think, appreciate the good days. And and a good practice for me is always if I'm seeing that I'm not making progress or I don't have the motivation or I have the days when I think, oh, this is just a ridiculous idea because everyone's already moved to remote work. It's all solved. I come back to that day or those thoughts and I think, okay, why am I thinking this way? It's like, what can I learn from um, even having having those thoughts or or even getting a lot of critical feedback you want to understand why people are perceiving it this way not necessarily um, to just kind of discard that feedback because it's not you know it's not favoring whatever you want to do but just more to understand different points of view and and see that you know if you're going with that idea out to the world, there's going to be people who th- that it doesn't resonate with. Yeah. So just trying to, I think, deconstruct how, why those thoughts arise or why people have a certain opinion about this and then figuring out, you know, what you can learn from there and like if there's an interesting take on something. And yeah. Then... For me, it hits on, on two points that I'm starting to realize are very, very critical is kindness and, and curiosity. And by kindness, I mean, even when you have those bad days, whether that's in sports or in your work, to realize that um, you that you are kind to yourself. Um, and oftentimes, maybe because of sort of my own experience in my professional career and spending a lot of time in the US and sort of the pressure of work, I think in the business context, in the professional context, we have, we tend to think in high stakes. We tend to think of the pressure and sort of the achievements that we need to deliver and the accomplishments that we need to show, which oftentimes puts so much pressure on your own performance that you forget to actually be kind to yourself. And even that one moment of switching between sort of like, are you beating yourself up with a stick to keep going forward? Or are you doing it with kind of a smile on your face just out of the sheer kind of goodness of your heart to yourself? I think is a huge influencing factor on how well you manage stress, to be honest with you, and and how well you perform. And this idea of curiosity that I think 
you just talked about maybe you didn't use the exact word but seeing every opportunity as kind of a learning aspect of hey i'm curious what's going to happen next when somebody crushes you with their hopefully very pointed and very helpful feedback not thinking the stakes are super high i'm failing this is going to be terrible but thinking ah interesting what can i learn from this and what can i come back and do tomorrow when the next day starts or whenever to to move move on from that um, so i think those those two words or those two concepts are becoming very critical for me as well i like that quote that says treat yourself like someone you loved mm-hmm I think that Very really good. hits home for me. Whenever I go into this like negative downward spiral, I think, would I be like that towards a friend of mine? Or like, would I ever treat my friend like this? Never. I would be like, well, you know, tomorrow's another day. It's like, well, you'll be fine. And then have a glass of wine. <laughs> it makes me think, talking about Corona, because it's a topic that we cannot avoid. I was supposed to do a bike race this June in Norway that was going to be quite difficult. And so I was putting a lot of effort and time into training for it and preparing for it. And of course it got canceled, which is another story. But what I loved about that process and what I keep coming back to is I was using this uh, sort of biking coaching software that essentially was just showing you a bunch of charts and then a recorded voice was giving you tips. And one of the tips was basically this coach voice asking you, are you smiling? And that's, like, that's, what? Ridiculous. that's ridiculous. But then it kind of got me into the habit of thinking about what is my current state of mind that I'm in? And you realize sports being a great analogy, right? You're pushing, you're trying to get to that next level. Are your teeth clenched and are you struggling or are you doing it with that positive attitude and with a smile on your face. And now one question I keep coming back to it because I think it's so inspiring. Look at our mental state when you wake up in the morning. Are you ready and excited? Do you have a smile on your face or are you barely dragging your feet out of bed looking for that cup of coffee? And also in our professional lives, right? If you're having a difficult situation, how can you turn that around and put a smile on your face, even if you're forcing it? Because I've definitely had to force it on myself, but then I've actually seen the effects that that has. Mm -hmm. So this idea of kindness, I keep coming back to it. I think it's so important. I think it's, it's a point that resonates that you can shift your perspective and that it will make a difference. And if you're skeptical about it, just try it, you know, go on a run or you know, when you're facing that difficult moment in your day, just force yourself to put a smile on your face and see what happens. So we would say that kindness and curiosity are those important mindsets to have when facing some adversity in whatever you're doing in terms of trying to build a company or even in your day-to-day -day work. But what would you say would be those actionable things that you can do in terms of uh, getting yourself back up from a tough day. Mm -hmm. I think that's highly individual for everybody. The two things that I love doing and that I found very, find very helpful are walks outside, 
I think it's very basic. Probably everybody would say the same, but uh, I know that for me it helps a lot to just disconnect and reflect a little bit. And that is also kind of related to the second thing that I find very helpful, this idea of disconnecting, is I've gotten into the habit of uh, using kind of a timer to manage my work, a bit like the Pomodoro technique, but kind of my own weird variation of that where I will work for 60 minutes and then I will take a 10 minute break. And after I think three of the 60 minute sessions, I'll take a longer break, 30 minutes or so. And forcing yourself to take that break and you need to be disciplined and stick with it, but forcing yourself to take that break, I think is a great way to disconnect, quickly step back and realize that maybe you're stuck or maybe your mind is racing and that you know you need to go lie down on the floor and meditate a bit or go into the kitchen have a cup of tea and come back but just having a little bit of perspective and for me that practical step of having that timer and every 60 minutes reminding me that okay this is my chance to reflect on what I'm doing and take a step back has been super super helpful. I think it only initially might seem like a bit of effort but what you have to do is just set a lot of alarms um, even on a daily basis and then that, that can structure your day. I think it's so fascinating because ultimately we're all animals. It's just we're a little bit more conscious maybe nowadays of the fact that we are animals and so we learn how we can use different techniques to manage sort of our own animal spirit and it's about, you know, it made me think of the Pavlov's dog with the reflexes, right? At some point you just get to a place where you just have your reflexes and when the alarm goes off, it's kind of like, okay, this is a thing that needs to happen now and then you go do it. You don't really think about it. Um, and that's something actually I've also learned from sports is oftentimes we benefit from removing optionality and removing choice. And it's just about saying, I will do this and then committing to it. And once you've committed to it, there's no question of whether you're going to get up from the couch and go to the gym because in the morning you've already told yourself I'm going to be in the gym by 8 p.m. and then you just go do it. I think this is a trick that comes from deciding that something that you do becomes part of your identity. Like for me, working out on a daily basis, some days this is less intense, some days this is more intense, but it's part of my identity and there's no way I'm giving it up for anything. Like this is so important. No optionality, I think, helps to uh, shift your mindset to being accountable. For Completely. And I think it's an interesting point to kind of tie back to where we started around money and finances. Uh, this is something we've heard uh, through our expert research and interviews that there's different things in life where you actually don't want choice. I think we've been conditioned to think about choice as this sort of best invention of humankind but coming back to the point of managing our human nature and sort of reflexes and being an essentially an animal we actually don't need choice in certain aspects of our of our lives right if you think about a sickness or a sick person and them going to the doctor when you do that or this person does that do they want to be told what to do how to get better or do they want options on the things they could do that would then lead to certain outcomes, right? I think in the vast majority of cases, and I'm sure there's been research done on this, people would say, 
I don't care about the options. I want the doctor, and this is why I'm paying this person to tell me what to do. And when we think about money and finances, we actually kind of at Alice think about those things in a very similar way, which is a little bit counterintuitive, right? Because we've been raised to think about I need my options. I need to understand what kind of things I could do. What's the optionality? But we actually see that in a topic like money, like health, certain other things, removing optionality is actually moving you forward much better than having options. Because otherwise, you get stuck and sort of end up in the land of paralysis by analysis. Maybe the in the basic areas of your life, you actually don't want optionality. Whether it's health, I don't want to choose between swing between not feeling great and feeling great right. every other day. Sometimes you just want to be told what to do, and I think that's a powerful point that we need to come back to sometimes. That our own lives are better served by not having options, which is counterintuitive, and it also as at Alice we are building product and thinking about what is the product vision. It's a pretty difficult point to deal with because, yes, rationality and common sense, and as I said, we've been conditioned to think about choices. So, how do we build the product in a way that feels like it's giving you those things, but actually doing counterintuitive things to lead you to a place that's still better for you than you probably would get to otherwise if you had your own kind of choices and optionality. I wonder if the way forward with that is to first explain to people why options are not the best way forward in some areas of your life. I think a good analogy is a restaurant menu. We get so overwhelmed by choice in uh, places where there's, let's say, fifty dishes to choose from. It's like if you go to any Vietnamese place in Berlin, right. I'll take to, the number eighty-three, please. Yeah, and you have to choose from so many dishes. Always, my preference is to go to a place where you have three things to choose from, and it, and sometimes even then it's hard. There are parts of your life where you just want to be told, like you said, you just want to be told what to do. Right, and I think that we actually subconsciously know that that's the case. So I'm wondering how much education we need to do on that, rather than giving the user the permission to let go in a way. Right? Sometimes you just need somebody else to to tell you it's okay. A big thing for me here is when I think about my time and energy in life is that I know that I have a limited budget, and so I think if I'm being told that listen. Out of your budget, there are things that you want to devote more more energy and attention to, and there are things that you don't want to do that with. And so, some of those that are tedious and hard, and let it be finances. If I can limit the budget that I have to devote it to, so that I can do other things that really are interesting to me, that should be an easy choice. Precisely, that's the long term vision. Yeah, yet another inspiring point for our listeners. Something to think about: Where does your energy go on a daily basis, and how you can optimize your energy and time budget、um, so that you can spend more of it doing things that really、uh, fulfill your passion or spark your interests, and then log in and sign up for Alice so Alice can take care of your finances. <laughs> Okay, 
I think it's time for the VP Roulette, our favorite segment on the podcast. So Artyom, please choose three numbers from one to ten so you can answer random questions about things that are unrelated to finances of tomorrow. I will pick ten, eight and two. Let's start with two. What would you do if money was not the issue? If you could do anything in life, what would be your thing? DJing. <laughs> well, we live in Berlin. It's a natural answer <laughs> to come up with. DJing. Okay, you would be a professional musician. Well, you are already a uh, pretty professional DJ anyway. We will link up to your SoundCloud. That's people want to uh, check it out. You've also had an episode on uh, Radio Corona Rocks. Yes. We, we love that show. And well, hopefully you'll come back because, you know, we're in the second lockdown. Ophir, shout out. Yeah. Shout out to Ophir. You guys should do it again. Okay. Let's move to the other one. Eight? Yes. It? What's your favorite game or app on your phone? Spotify. Hands down. I think it's the most consistent presence uh, in my digital life. I I don't know how people live without Spotify. I don't know how people live without paying for Spotify, to be honest with you. I've been a paying customer, I think, since 2012. I hope nobody from Spotify is listening, but I would easily pay five times more what I pay right now. It's just, this is how much value this product provides to me in my life. So, I had a conversation with a friend recently when he said, Oh, you know, I don't feel like it's fair that people have to pay for Spotify. And I just thought it was ridiculous because the amount of content and the amount of joy that music brings you, well, now also the podcasts that are available on Spotify, I don't think you can put a price on how valuable this is. Although I'm very happy with my current subscription price, please do not raise it. <laughs> That's yeah, I, I definitely agree. Okay, and the last question is number 10. Most important skill for success in the remote environment? Staying motivated. Coming back to what we just talked about and spent quite a lot of time on is, yeah, building that momentum for yourself and staying motivated and managing your own mental space to, to keep going. Even if it means carving out some time for yourself to deal with that, that is probably a better way to tackle any challenges that you're facing, having some me time first so that you can come back and do uh, the work that that you need to do. Yeah. I Definitely. Agree. I agree. All right, Artem, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Hopefully you'll come back at some point once you guys are ready to launch the product. Would love then, to. And then we can talk about how you're gonna change the future of finances for women. Thanks a lot for having me. Thank you guys for listening. See you next time. Bye.